Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it even means anything at all. <laughs> I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Zhang, a culture writer and critic. And this week, we're discussing Squid Game and Foundation, two shows about more or less the baser elements of the folly of human nature. That's a good one. Yeah. Not to get philosophical up in here. <laughs> of course. How have you been, Jenny? I mean, okay. Yeah. Um, coming off a, another very busy week, and I'm I'm realizing more and more that like there's so much TV, there's so many things I have to sort of stay on top of, and it's it's getting to yeah. be a lot. Um, what are some things that are like in your regular rotation now that we have several like ongoing uh, TV shows to watch? Fuck me. I I've got to say, this is the first time ever in my life that I felt overwhelmed by the the amount of TV that I have to watch. Nice. All right, so in terms of rotation, finished up Reservation Dogs. Great, great season of TV. Uh, Just wanted to check back in and say that it definitely saved it for me, and I officially love it. I have to catch up, but I'm excited too. Yeah, I think episodes like four, five, and six are just incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... Only Murders in the Building, still doing that. Yeah, me too. It's going great. And then I just started Made on Netflix, which mm. stars uh, Margaret Qualey. Oh, okay. How about you? What have you been? What, what have you? What's on your rotation? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot of Friday releases now. Like, so yeah. Bake Off, Great British Bake Off is back. <gasps> oh yeah, 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 yeah. that the, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Morning Show, keeping up with that, of course. Ted Lasso mm-hmm. season two. You know, I'm I'm committed to seeing this out, but it's sort of Same. a lower priority in my my watch. Uh, is it schedule. done yet, or is there still one more episode to go? I'm not even sure. I haven't I, I haven't watched yeah. the most recent one. But yeah, lots of stuff. Yeah. Um, trying to keep up. Let's just like keep chugging along, I guess. And mm-hmm. Ellen, what about you? How's your week going? Yeah, I've been all right. Other than just being overwhelmed with TV, I've been trying to like go out and about. This is the perfect weather in New York. It's like a little bit chilly, but it's still sunny and nice. Mm. Did a little bit of a Midtown thing yesterday. Ate some decent food at this cafe called Lodi. Oh. It's like it's like um, if you know your restaurants in New York, or if you if you follow like Domoir. <laughs> the guys the guys that own like Cafe Ultra Paradiso oh. and Estella, they just opened up this like cafe okay. style spot. Like it's like an Italian style cafe called Lodi and they you essentially like order like small plates and stuff. It's very expensive, but it's cute. It's like a cute little like it's at one Rockefeller Plaza and you feel very like money. Oh wow. You're sitting there, you know? Okay. So so, nice. so that is a restaurant recommendation from Helen. Yeah, don't. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a half recommendation. It's like if you find yourself in Midtown, I would say that that's a cute place to go to because there's really not much in Midtown. All right, fair so, enough. Fair yeah. enough. Uh, so after that very exciting week, um, tell me what did you watch uh, for this week, Bellin? Oh man, I feel like me and the rest of the whole world <laughs> have been watching Squid Game. So. If you have been living under a rock and you have no idea what this show is, what I'm talking about, this is the number one show on Netflix. It is a Korean drama. I guess you can call it a Korean drama or suspense thriller of some kind about a bunch of people that go into an essentially murderous series of games. Uh, I'll explain it a little bit more, but if you just watch the preview on Netflix, which I'm sure has been suggested to you already... If you have an account, mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, it's just like a, a, a shock of pink and, um, 
just very eerie, eerie tension. So we actually started watching this because it was recommended from our dear friend James Hansen. Yeah, just started getting suggestions for this by the algorithm before even committing to to anything. Totally. It's like all over, it's all over Twitter as well. So we were just like, what is the fuss all about? And initially I watched a couple episodes because I think Jenny was a little bit worried that it's like super gruesome, (laughs) but it's not too bad. Just just sort of like look away slightly in, in certain scenes. There's certainly a lot of blood, a lot of bodily harm, but you know, I found it manageable and I'm kind of a wuss, so... You're not a wuss. You have just been protecting your innocence in this horror of the world that we live in, and I am I am now numb to it. Many like like many people in this world. Anyway, so this show, just to give you a little bit of a backstory, especially to talk about the creators, especially to talk about the stars, and I just want to like just up top. I'm so sorry to any of our Korean listeners or Korean speaking listeners for my pronunciation. I'm trying my best. So <laughs> this is. Written and directed by Hwang Dong-hyuk, um, who is known in Korea for like, he started off doing a lot of like short films, but then he ended up, you know, creating a lot of actual film films um, for the box office in Korea. And I think The Granny was a hit. I think Fortress was a hit. And I believe this is his first TV show. So that's fun. And it stars uh, Lee Jung-jae as our protagonist, Song Gi-hun, Park Hae-soo as Chong Sung-woo, and uh, Jung Ho Yun as it's she's a model actually, and this is her first acting debut. She plays like a pickpocketing North Korea defector, uh, Kang Se Byuk. So we actually initially only really know um, Gi Hun's character first, like Lee Jung Jae's character first, because everybody else's name is a little bit. It doesn't really matter, but like everyone has a number, and that's why you don't really know their names initially. It has a bunch of other characters um i will give a special shout out to gong yu who if you have seen the film train to busan which is i think available in most places um he's the fucking hottie in that and he uh, he stars in the first and the very last episode and there's a fantastic article in vulture about him and the scene that he's in in the in the first so the reason why i wanted to talk about this honestly is because it, it like we talk about how popular it is. I think we need to. If anyone hasn't heard about this, the scale of the popularity is actually mad. So it's the first Korean series to hit Netflix's number one list, and I think it's like on there still. And it's uh, turning out to be one of Netflix's most viewed shows of all time. It's like about to be Bridgerton. Yeah, well deserved. <laughs> well, well deserved. I mean, I'm glad someone toppled Bridgerton. Not that I hate Bridgerton at all it's just come on we can all do better as viewers yeah so very happy for i i guess the, the netflix career division shout out to them they're fucking milking in it but i guess i wanted to talk to you a little about why you think this reached such a, a peak of popularity like why this yeah that's an interesting question from what i'm seeing like it really has been a, a word of mouth sort of organic hit which is quite uh rare and like that's honestly the the kind of hit that you could only hope for as like a an an exec who's looking for numbers yeah it's it really spread i think primarily on tiktok which as i Mm. mentioned like i started getting served with videos about this uh basically the day it came out and i had not even like thought about watching it at that point but the more and more i saw the more and more intrigued I was and then it developed like this big fandom a very passionate fan base and I think a lot of young people especially you know I see like all the time like young people are watching stuff like um 
Attack on Titans and like other things like anime or like Korean shows or Asian shows in general that maybe were not as widely accessible before, but now like a lot of young people are watching these kind of things. And so I think it was an audience that was already pretty primed to potentially be interested in this kind of thing. Yeah. And then the format, the way that, you know, you want to root for certain characters, it really took hold uh, as like a, a very passionate fandom for people to buy into. And so, yeah, I think, I think it really started with uh, this kind of like young and possibly like the, especially the Asian uh, viewer base. And then it sort of snowballed into like people in media, like taking notice uh, critics, like, and then, you know, this whole big symphony of everyone talking about Squid Game right now. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of the premise, it is a nine episode series, which is an odd number, I think Mm -hmm. for Netflix, the series, it's like hundreds and hundreds of players compete in like several rounds of life or death games that are based on traditional Korean childhood games. The prize is ultimately 45.6 billion won, which is about $52.3 million. It's a lot of fucking money. And these people are selected... This isn't giving too much away, by the way. Um, Mm -hmm. You will get this in the first episode. But these people are selected because they have amassed so much debt that they can never really get out of. And what I thought was interesting in this is there's this thing about signing away your body. I can't really talk to that in terms of what that means in Korea necessarily, but like in Turkey, that's also a thing where debt collectors um, who are essentially gangsters for the most part, they will um, like organ, organ, not even donation, organ harvesting is like a real thing. So that's uh, super dark and depressing and something that actually happens. Um, And, you know, what do you do once you reach that point? You're basically giving up your body and you probably might die. So a lot of these people are like having to deal with that. And they have been pre-selected by the powers that be that run this game to compete in it. So, you know, we're talking about the the popularity of this. I do believe the the generation of it, but I think also the tension that this has in terms of like the format, the yeah. life or death, that it's just like constant high stakes. And you know, it's not to say that this isn't something we've we haven't seen before. I think there's a lot of people, my, myself included, that mentioned Alice in Borderland, which is a Japanese TV show, also on Netflix. That is based on a particular type of manga, which is survivalist manga, which is you know it's pretty self-explanatory. But it's the same format. It's just a bunch of people that have to do like they have to compete in life or death games. The difference between Alice in Borderland and this one is that in Alice in Borderland they don't have a choice to compete whereas in squid game they do which therein lies the horror basically so i just want to talk a little bit more about like netflix's strategy because i think this is really important in terms of why this has paid off for them with skid with squid game it's not that netflix has not had success with other international shows and like we have noticed it especially in the last five years the amount of money that they've been pouring into their like international divisions from spain there was money heist which i never really watched uh but that was really really popular apparently and then in France, we had Call My Agent. I watched Dark, which is from Germany. All of these are super popular, but they just haven't broken the non... Like, the type of viewer... Like I'm the type of viewer that will watch international stuff. And then there's a type of viewer, especially in America and the UK, that is just like, will not, will not engage in any kind of international anything. It kind of reminds me of before times when... Um, 
you know, at the Oscars when that that glorious time in history before everything went to shit, <laughs> when Bong Joon Ho <laughs> was talking about, you know, if Americans just get over that one inch uh, subtitle barrier, that they they they'll open up the world to amazing international cinema. I don't think he meant for Squid Game <laughs> necessarily, but I, it feels like that is catching on. So it does feel like people are more open to subtitle stuff. But it's just fascinating to see how this is kind of broken into like from the kid, like like you mentioned, from TikTok, the kids that are already listening to K-pop, already watching K-dramas, already know their Korean actors and pop stars or whatever, into a bunch of people that this is probably their first ever K-drama that they've ever seen, you know? But I think it also does kind of follow a very traditional Netflix format. What do you think? Like I was as I was watching it, especially as, as I was running through the episodes, I was like, this feels very familiar like yeah it's safe to say it's nothing groundbreaking in terms of the actual uh content yeah it's just done quite well and i think the format naturally lends itself to uh this very addictive viewing experience where the tension is built in the stakes are built in the the format is like more or less built in into the you know the nature of how the games work with these different rounds so all of that like makes for a very like rational TV sort of series format and viewing experience. So I think that it really works in its favor in terms of producing the kind of uh, emotions and kind of like on the edge of your seat uh, reaction in the viewers that were watching this. Yeah, and it looks amazing. Like yes, there's good production value. Very very good production value. So huge shout out to the art director Che Kyung Sun. And I think it really worked in terms of like pulling out a performance from all the actors because at the end of the day, like you can pretend all you like, but the second you're in a room like that, it kind of fucks with you, <laughs> um, no matter how much you're trying to like pretend or whatever. And it's just, it really is very, very dreamlike. And it it's weird because it doesn't feel expensive, but it also does at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Like you can tell that it's a set. Yeah, it works like kind of kind of seamlessly. Like it's like the point of, you know, set design or like a kind of creating an immersive world is uh you you kind of notice it and kind of admire it, but at the same time it's not so, you know, noticeable sticking out so much that you it pulls you away from the world to yeah. to think about it in a medicine. Yeah. Um I think what they did in terms of the you know the games being something based on childhood. Mm-hmm. and how that reflects on the set i think it's sick because essentially what it does is it just kind of like it pulls out or it makes you feel childlike the format of it the way that it looks like the stairs going up and down which is probably the, yeah. the one the image that you will see when you click on the preview for it that is like horrific but at the same time like if you were a kid that would be you'd be having so much fun but there's always something eerie about it at the same time as yeah adults. it's like when you it's like when you hear like the the tinkle of like a music box from, yeah when you're a kid Super it's like eerie. great but yeah when as an adult that stuff is is scary as fuck yeah and um you know money it always ruins everything and i think that's like the smartness of the concept itself which apparently by the way the creator thought of this idea back in 2008 2009 and then it was like shelved until like netflix came along and decided to do something with it so it's it's a fantastic concept like in terms of the horror of we're going to do something that kind of incurs a bit of nostalgia in you, but we're going to do it while you're a grown fucking adult with very, very grown responsibilities and grown problems. And then the way that you're trying to fix it is through the ultimate life or death. It's just, yeah, it's it's a great concept. I do think that like 
like you mentioned, it's not that groundbreaking with regards to like the character development, especially the way that it ends. It feels very yeah. Ending is a little bit yeah, it's a bit of a wet fart. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you uh, yeah. what you thought of the ending because it's very. Yeah. It's very divisive right now. I think. So, I love my Korean dramas, and I do, I don't feel like I'm qualified. I'm, I'm certainly not qualified to talk about this, but as someone that comes from another country that has a huge, booming, very successful Turkish drama, like that's what I'm talking about. There's just something in. Uh, a lot of the performances that are just a bit much like I kind of want that Nordic restraint every now and again (laughs) from my people and I kind of feel like Korean performances or like with actors especially and like the way that scenes play out it's something that I look for as well like it's just very overly dramatic and that was my beef with the end there's like this reveal essentially and like a confrontation of some kind and I just wish that that performance was a little bit more muted. I don't know. I just, I, I just didn't, I didn't like that necessarily. But I also did like how it ultimately ended, like the very, very last scene. I thought that was interesting. What about you? What did you think about it? I guess I'm of, of, of two minds, which is like, I don't like this thing now where, you know, a season or a show, it essentially ends by setting up the what could possibly be a second season or comes next like it's laying the groundwork for that to the to the point where it continually obscures these things and creates more mystery um i I think maybe that's fine if you're 100 percent going to make a follow-up to this but the thing is like a season two has not been confirmed no huang has said like oh maybe but i'm i'm kind of doing other projects I, i like to switch it up a little bit so who knows so if that's the case if this might be your only shot then uh, it's personally kind of irritating to me to to litter this with all these uh, extra questions that may never get resolved. So um, just a quick spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't seen the season finale. I'm not going to completely reveal what happened, but you can probably gauge from what I say. So I agree. I think it is irritating. But the reason why I liked it is because if it did end there, then it's perfect. Because... There's this like we there's like this undercurrent of like why are these people doing this? Yeah, that's the biggest mystery. What is the compulsion to a work here to be do this to people to see do it over and over again? Like there's like this one scene in the middle of the season where you find out that this has been happening for years. And it's just like that is interesting to me. I to me I loved it because it was just like, oh great, yeah, we can just end it there and that just it just never answers the question. And I think there's like a beauty in that. But I don't know if like not necessarily Huang, but I don't know if Huang and you know the eventual writers room because apparently he didn't have a writers room for this season and he's planning on having one for the next one if he does, <laughs> which is like mad to me. But um I think the I think they are anticipating a middle a mid-tier intelligence of audience which um is fair because i think that's your it is fair Netflix i have viewer. i have yeah. read some i have read some reactions and like reddit threads and it very much shows like how young some of these audiences are and yeah. how yeah. much some of them demanded a are demanding sort of like a a neatly tied up happy ending which i yeah. would not have been into either at all what's the point you've just spent like nine hours in deep misery about Mm-hmm. The state of human existence in a capitalist society. Why the fuck? Why the fuck does that deserve a happy ending? Look at me scolding. 
um but yeah no i think i think i get what you mean though like it it is definitely setting up for season two and it is definitely annoying so saying all of that do you have a personal favorite out of your characters Mm, that's the ultimate question here i think i have like a favorite in terms of uh character like how they're written as a character and then i have a favorite in terms of who I would have been rooting for, I suppose. Right. So I'll say my favorite in terms of like, as a slightly more complex character is uh, Sung Woo, mm. who is, of course, he faces a classic dilemma of, do I give in to my baser instincts, like go, go in for the kill uh, or multiple kills, or do I retain some shred of sort of integrity I was trying to uphold at the beginning? Yeah. So he's, he's probably kind of the, he is written to be this way. But he is like sort of the more uh, complex character, I think, out of all these who are very good uh, in terms of, you know, their their concept, but quite a lot of like stock characters. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's something it's funny because I think towards the end, he is somewhat of a villain. Yeah. But I didn't think that was necessarily fair. And I think at the end, like the way that his arc plays out is really, really good. But his ruthlessness, he's just like, I know what this is. You know, right? And I, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think he's definitely top tier. I like him more than the actual protagonist, which is interesting. I think, I think so too. I felt, I felt for him more, at least. Yeah. Um, you know, he is, he did sort of get forced into being the bad guy, but also like, who is a bad guy in this? Like yeah, yeah, anyone, yeah. like at, at the end, you know, this is a game of survival in some sense, for and sure. if it's not, if it's not them, it's you. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I I, I liked uh, a Sebyok, the uh, North Korean defector, like as a personal, yeah. you know, as a personal someone who I'm rooting for. <laughs> for sure. I she's also the the actress that plays her Jung Ho Yun. She is fucking popping out here now. Like, yeah, I think she's everyone is, up. Yeah, I think everyone has a crush on her, which is absolutely fair because she's gorgeous. Um, I agree. I think she's my favorite out mm-hmm. of all of them because i think she has that same element as sangwoo is just like she's kind of going into this pretty clear-eyed but um i've got to say i want to give a huge shout out to the robot doll uh, oh, in episode yeah. one i think she's she's Iconic. the one that's absolute icon i think um e alex jung had a <laughs> great article in vulture about shout out to vulture first of all for their squid game coverage like fantastic i think <laughs> amanda rosenberg who wrote a fantastically thirsty article about gong yu um and how she wants to be slapped by him uh <laughs> same definitely same so um e alex jung wrote a fantastic article uh interviewing the robot doll <laughs> Uh, which I think was really, really great. But so if you don't know, it's the first episode. She's the, they play this game called Red Light, Green Light, where essentially you freeze every time she turns around and looks at you. And if you don't, uh, you die. Standard. Um, so she's, she's great. She's like fucking 10 feet tall and an absolute icon. And the memes, the memes. Shout out to the memes, um, which are obviously how you know there's real cultural currency right. <laughs> in anything now. So this is certainly an exciting watch, I think. I think this is definitely something for you if you like to just be a little bit on edge and see how something plays out. I think the last couple of episodes are a little bit... I mean, I don't know. I think that there's only so much you can do one episode to episode. It's just like high stakes about death. I think towards the end, it just becomes a little bit old. You th- I think your uh, your senses get a little bit dulled <laughs> by seeing people like die over and over again. 
But all in all, a fun watch. Uh, very, very happy for what this means in general for Korean TV uh, reaching an international audience. I think it's fantastic. Will there be? <laughs> will there be an American version of this? Will Americans oh try God. and recreate the most popular Korean dramas? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I will actually. Your cursed words. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> I would wager that actually network TV will try and get into the American version of K drama game. Mm. That's my little like Mystic Meg prediction. I think it's a smart prediction, yeah. Yeah, because it's just, I mean, anyway. If you're a bit of a nihilist like me that just it, it finds some kind of satisfaction at peering into like the depths of the hollowed out human existence and how money is just like the biggest curse that has ever happened to our society, period, uh, this is a great example of that. All right, Jenny, so amidst the pile of stuff that you've been watching, what's your pick for the week? So one of the things I have been watching, and you as well, Melon, is Foundation on Apple TV+. Plus. So this is a, a pretty new sci-fi drama series uh, created by David Escoyer and Josh Friedman, both of whom are uh, pretty much like industry vets. Um, so the first three episodes are out so far as of recording time and the time you hear this probably, with a new episode every Friday, and there'll be a total of 10 episodes for this season. So three episodes in. I'm a little bit early, I think, uh, compared to when we would normally talk about a show, but I feel like at this point, I have kind of seen enough somewhat to, for me to decide, you know, whether or not to continue. So, uh, this show is based on the foundation series, uh, of stories by Isaac Asimov, who was a very famous writer, and these stories and books that he wrote, they were uh, basically a whole set of short stories that were turned into a trilogy of, book, trilogy of books and further editions between the 1940s and 90s. And the basic premise is that uh, at some point in the future, there's a galactic empire spanning the Milky Way that's doomed to fall, according to a mathematician named Harry Seldon, who discovers this using psychohistory, which is a new field and a creation sort of of, of Isaac Asimov's uh, that uses mathematical statistics to predict the future behavior of large groups of people, uh, aka like humanity. So the fall of the empire is supposed to be followed by a 30,000 year dark age. But if actions are taken according to Selden's mitigation plan, this dark period will only last a thousand years, and his plan is to set up a foundation of scientists and engineers and other people that will uh, more or less retain human knowledge and sort of be the setup for whatever civilization comes after the Dark Age. That's a mouthful, but that's basically the, the premise of the, the series uh, of books and stories. And I will say that there's quite a lot of deviation from the books uh, in this TV show, although I haven't read the books, but I've you know, looked up what are the differences and it turns out there are a lot of differences, including, yeah, changes to major characters, like a lot of gender swapping of protagonists, a lot of entirely new plot points and, and developments and, and deaths and, and basically a whole lot has changed. So I will talk about what the show is because again, I haven't read the books, but so we're going off what the show is so far. So we see in the first two episodes uh, that it is, it is still about Selden 
who's played by Jared Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out, Mad Men. Huge shout out. Love you. And The Crown, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, yeah love him from Mad Men. Yes. And then he has uh, his new protege, Gail Dornick, who's played by, uh, I think, a relative new- newcomer, Lou LaBelle. Mm-hmm. And their appeal to the Empire to let them create the foundation uh, to save, you know, humanity. Sure. And then there's the Emperor, Lee Pace. Another shout out to, to Lee Pace. Huge always. shout out. Halt and catch fire, gang. Rise up. Yes. Um, so he is the reigning Empire of what is like always going to be a set of three Emperors who are all clones of this original Empire. So funny. It's so good. Which is a very interesting concept, and I think one that is entirely new to the show. Mm-hmm. So we have, like, a young emperor who's in training. There's the adult version who reigns, which is Lee Pace, and an older version, uh, played by Terrence Mann, mm-hmm. who will eventually die, and so so on and so forth, yeah. like, repeating. So in the third episode, we start getting into the future, which covers the events after the Foundation has already been set up as a colony on this faraway planet called Terminus um, for several decades already, mm-hmm. with a warden, Salvor Hardin, played by, again, I think a relative newcomer, Leah Harvey, acting as a protagonist of that arc. So, yeah. sorry, that was, like, a mountain of stuff to get through, but this is, like, it just... By necessity, there's just so much, so much kind of, to, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the groundwork to set here. So uh, how far along are you, Melon? I finished episode two and I, I still have episode three and four, I think, came four out. Is out uh, four is out next next week. Next week. Oh, yeah. So I've just got episode three to watch. Um, But yeah, first two episodes, I've, I knocked them out. My first impression of just the pilot, I was just like, all right, well, this is fun. This is a new world. Yeah. Um, that was just my initial takeaway. What about you? What, what, what do you think about it so far? I do like the world building aspect of it. Um, I think they actually do a pretty good job with the world building. Yeah. But I have, I guess, issues with how a lot of the narrative and the character development is, mm. is turning out. Yeah. So if everything I I said sounded confusing, that's because it is. Um, from what I understand, like the series of books is just like notoriously difficult to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, because all the events take place across a millennium. There are a ton of characters and storylines. Uh, it's just really sprawling. So this is actually the first time an ad- adaptation of this has made it to the screen. Like there was a failed movie attempt. Um, so this is like the first time it's it's appearing on screen. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see why, I think, after watching a few episodes of this. Yeah. Like the first two episodes, of course, they have to get in all the world building and character introduction and... Like I said, I, I feel like we agree that the world building is pretty okay, but I think the characters are kind of suffering yeah. from just this like limited space and time. And there's just like so much uh, narratively that the series is not showing in yeah. order to sort of move things along, which I think is like really clear even to, you know, people who aren't picky or aren't critics. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be clear even to the, the average viewer. So, like, I'll use an example, episode one and two, since both of us have watched that, and that's, yeah. like, kind of what drove me off the edge, is, like, between the first and second episode, ostensibly only a few months have passed, but, you know, somehow out of nowhere, the foundation has already been created. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. at least, like, a hundred or so people on this, like, huge ship yeah. on its way to Terminus, and Gale and Selden's adopted son, Rage, who's played by Alfred Enoch, uh, shout out again. To, shout um, out to How to Get Away with Murder Gang, Rise Up. Yep. And early Harry Potter gang. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So somehow, like, out of nowhere, they are already in a serious relationship that we didn't get to see happen 
at all. Like we didn't yeah. see the beginning of the relationship. We didn't see any of the chemistry they had together. Yeah. And also Gail has already transformed from this quiet backwater outcast to a very confident and self-assured leader. But yeah. again, we didn't, we didn't see any of that development happen. Mm-hmm. It just was sort of from one episode to the next things changed radically and we were supposed to accept that and yeah. accept the, the new reality. But as TV viewers, that is the kind of development that sort of makes you attached to the characters and gets you to, yeah. to like them and to be interested in their narrative. <laughs> when 10 minutes into episode two, like I had to like go out and see if I'd missed an episode. <laughs> and that's, you're absolutely right. There's one thing that I think a lot of good TV shows do, which is just stick you in the middle of the action and just don't explain anything. And then you eventually find out what everything means. And that's good, and that's good writing, but I think this just kind of has gone a little bit too far into that. And what they're doing now, just off of just off of the how the second episode ends, it just is hoping that the viewers are curious enough about the chain of events that just happened in the episode to want to watch the next one to see, you know, where the chips fall with it. I, I feel like you have to be very, very invested or really, really into sci-fi to want to do that and i don't know if your sentient viewer who doesn't really care about any of these things is gonna hit next right yeah like it it is it does seem like it's somewhat made for fans in that sense but at the same time like from what i understand so much of it has radically changed from the original books and stories that it's like are the true foundation heads are they going to be in into this since so much of this has has changed and been created solely for the series so it's kind of yeah. like a question of you know in trying to balance and have it all like be able to you know create new points for brand new viewers but also appeal to old viewers it's like i feel like it's almost falling into a kind of trap where it sits yeah. in the middle and doesn't really know where it's going yeah i mean i i can see in your notes you've mentioned game of thrones yeah um, but I think what made me think a lot was like, maybe I should rewatch the Game of Thrones pilot. And I don't know if this is going to happen with that. So it's just like, I, I know that it's like early days, but it does seem to be trying to replicate that. And you're absolutely right. Like just the way that they, yeah, it's tough, man. It's tough. It's tough <laughs> to make another Game of Thrones. It's really hard. Yeah. And I mean, all the all the platforms are trying. They, I mean, people are over and over again, they're trying to replicate the success of Game of Thrones. And you can tell, of course, like a lot of money has gone into this show and to all the other attempts. Um, but I'm actually someone who, I didn't watch Game of Thrones when it was like airing. I actually mm. watched all of it last year during during the early days of the pandemic for the first time ever. So like, yeah. it's still somewhat fresh in my mind. Yeah. Um, and I can tell like that, worked a lot better from the get-go at hooking people in Mm -hmm. and it was a little bit confusing still of course just because you are thrown into a world um as with any sort of genre piece but that one did a lot better at giving you a clear picture of the characters at their Mm. relationships with each other and how their narrative is is going to progress so i don't know it's missing foundation is like missing that whatever like the thing the the thing that that really defined game of thrones beginning would you say that it's like it spent too much time or invested too much in the world building or like offering (sighs) and not enough there's no balance in it really yeah that's a good question i I mean it's hard to say because i think the most successful part of it is the world building so far which i am intrigued by but probably it did doing that did sacrifice some of the uh 
the attention it could have paid to the actual characters and, and the yeah. narrative. So it's yeah. uh, probably the answer is like, yes, they, they did sacrifice and a little bit too much in favor mm. of world building. But world building is the most interesting part to me so far. I know. I think they're spending a little bit too much time on the Emperor's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we can get whatever we need from them in literally two thirds of what they've shown us. So yeah. I think you can get away with a third of the scenes of the Emperor's, give it a little bit more into the, the guys on the ship. Yeah. And I which, think everyone would be happier for it. Right. Which I think is, I believe that they did the Emperor stuff and like the cloning stuff, which wasn't in the original stories, I, I think. Yeah. They yeah. they did this to add continuity to the show because they wanted mm. to have, as they were like jumping forward decades and, and centuries, they wanted there to still be like a familiar face and familiar concept in the Empire, which I think was like, uh, not a bad gamble to make. Um, I think it's I think it's pretty genius. Actually. Yeah, like, I think it, I even I even love like conceptually. I think that's a really really smart idea in terms of like what it's trying to communicate, yeah. which is that these people just want to stay in power. You know, in the real world, it's not like that doesn't happen, or a version of that doesn't happen. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I I think maybe a little bit of time too much time is being spent on them, but again, it's it's hard because they're the most compelling part of the show to me so far. Yeah, like yeah, their entire yeah. origin, the whole deal. Yeah, yeah, the cloning part, like just these uncanny valley vibes. How so much of like everything from their their outfits and their hair to the palace and the way they rule is so kind of like yeah. uh, late days Roman Empire, like right before the fall. For uh, sure, that is yeah. the part that gives me the the kind of feeling that epic fantasy is is yeah. made for, and that's what I like the most. Yeah, but yeah, like you said, like funny, it is ironic i guess that the like for all that we're showing like the empire is like what's bad like we're painting this picture of like a brave group of um, rebels or revolutionaries who are going out to to build a new world like really still what is the most interesting is the the old stuff the dying empire uh, itself i mean it's all just i think our main takeaway is that it's a little bit uneven Mm. and if it was just a little bit more even, it would all together work. I'm still going to keep watching it because I'm just, I kind of trust that probably in the following episodes we'll get some kind of like coloring in the lines. Yeah. That's missing right now. So yeah. Yeah. I guess I'll probably, um, I'll probably continue watching until maybe mid season is when I'm going to make my final decision, but I, mm-hmm. I don't know so far. I'm not super convinced yet at this moment in time. So this week in culture, we wanted to talk uh, about James Bond and specifically <laughs> who yeah. we think maybe the next James Bond should or could be. Um, so this is based off of news, of course, tied to the release of No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's last James Bond movie, um, yeah, where the good for, him. good for him, he he deserves to not do this anymore. He deserves to retire from the shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Barbara Broccoli, who is more or less in control of the entire James Bond franchise, she said that they will start searching for the next James Bond in 2022. Yeah. So a little bit of backstory about the Broccolis, who have, we're not joking, that's literally their Yeah, name. best name ever. Um, <laughs> so Albert Broccoli, a.k.a. Cubby, um, he is the producer of the, basically when the film first started coming out back in the 60s. Uh, they're based on the novels by Ian Fleming. Just it was instantly a hit like 
I'm looking at the numbers that people like that they were making, and it was just already making millions even back in the 60s, 70s, going into the 80s. So he, st- as a producer, he just had this like iron grip contract where he gets a say on how, like, who's going to be the next James Bond, like, when the film's even going to be released. Like, he just has like ultimate power. And he he eventually relinquished his power. Yeah, in '96 he died in '96, and then he relinquished control to his his kids, one of whom is Barbara. So they they from Goldeneye onwards they've had control over the Bond films. So it's interesting because I think you know the speculation. Well, let me let me ask you actually, who was your first understanding of James Bond? Because I think I think like. My one in my time, it was Pierce Brosnan. That was our time uh, I guess as an my, American. I guess my first exposure was Pierce Brosnan as well, but mm. I haven't watched really any James Bond film in its entirety. Everything well, I know it, about it is like sort of seeped in from pop culture. It's fine, babe. You're not like a 40-year-old man. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I feel like it's a, it's a very particular type of dad movie. But yeah, I mean, in the UK, Sean Connery was like one of my first understandings because like they just fucking love Sean Connery out there. Mm. And he was one of the original... I think a lot of people consider him to be the best Bond, actually. Oh. But mm. we'll come back to that. Daniel Craig was interesting because I think he was the first blonde yeah i remember that cast. a little bit ugly a little bit rough around the edges quite quite think, craggy uh, yes yeah yeah very very much so and i think that was intentional because it was just a little bit like from what i understand the pierce brosnan films were just going off like a path that i don't think they wanted to follow it was like in that era of like where mission impossible films were getting really big too and they just kind of started going into space and shit and they were just like wait wait wait, 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 wait. <laughs> bring it back down to earth and then so they cast Dan- daniel craig as just like He's not necessarily completely polished. He's like a little bit rough. And mm-hmm. I think I think that really worked out for them. I think he's actually a fantastic Bond. Like I've seen a couple of his films. My favorite is Skyfall. I think it's like <laughs> what the Criterion Head's favorite Bond. J- literally just because Sam Mendes directed it and Roger Deakins is a cinematographer. But yeah, it's just I'm the same. I haven't really seen that much. Like it's not like, oh, the next James Bond's coming out. I've got to go see it. Like I'm really not that excited. That being said, I will be watching this one when it comes out in the movie theaters. Probably. What about you? Um, probably not. I'll be honest. <laughs> I I have not watched any of his or any of the Bond movies, and I I just I just continue will continue not. I think Jenny will not be giving Broccoli's money. No. <laughs> Sorry, Broccoli. That being said, the reason why I think we definitely wanted to talk about this is, like Jenny said, talk about who's going to be the next Bond. And there's been a lot of chat because I think it's a huge casting role. And there's been a bunch of suggestions. Can you name a couple of them for us? Yeah, I think there are suggestions are falling into one of two categories. One is the joke suggestion and one is the kind of more earnest uh, serious suggestion. Yeah, uh, I love a lot of the joke suggestions. To be honest, uh, there was one uh, on Twitter, and uh, some people have been suggesting Matt Barry from What We Do in the Shadows, and <laughs> knowing his character, what he does with his character on that show, um, oh, he fucking body fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I would only hope to see something like this. That would turn me and- into a Bond head. And he will not need to be replaced. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, there are also more, the, the more serious suggestions. And uh, I think you've, let's see, you linked a piece in here on Yahoo of 16 actors who could be the next James Bond after No Time to Die. Pellin, yeah. d- did you have a favorite on this list? So I'm going to go ahead and say Roger Jean Page. 
Um, mainly because I think he's a little bit boring. He's like very, very pretty. <laughs> yes. Very, very beautiful to look at. Yes. But super boring. Uh, yeah. I think that's I, a smart, like that's would, a sensible, that makes sense to me somehow. It's a sensible pick. Would I, if I was a broccoli, would I pick him? <laughs> Probably not. My pick, I think my pick, if I had choice to pick. Mm-hmm. I think I would probably go for Aaron Taylor Johnson if I'm being really real. Wow. Okay. Um, I think he's got that roughness. Yeah. And I think he's bloody gorgeous. And I think he needs to be on the screen more. Yeah. So that he can maybe realize that he doesn't need his elderly wife. <laughs> You're far, uh, part of the free Aaron Taylor Johnson movement. Absolutely free. Free my boy ATJ. So yeah. anyway. So I would, I would like Aaron Taylor Johnson. He was fantastic in Tenet, and I think he would fucking body it. <laughs> do you think? So. Do you think they would choose ever like uh, an American or non-Brit? No. Okay. Henry Golding too, I think would be great because again, but it's the same thing as like Roger John Page, where he's like really pretty but kind of boring on screen. Yeah. Falls flat. Yeah. Hmm. What well, they you? did say the Broccoli's did say they're open to a man of color. Plane. I think they're definitely gonna. I think they're definitely gonna pick a man of color. Just so you know. Yeah. yeah, but everyone's favorite pick from the last, I guess, decade, two decades, um, Idris Elba. He is yeah probably too old at this point. Um, people have really been on him for like two decades to get yeah, this Yeah, he would have been great 10 years ago, but Uncle's too old now. I do think Nicholas Holt would be great. I think, I think Nicholas Holt would be fucking amazing. I would be I just sad don't want him because, in it. Yeah, I'd be sad because he's yeah. he's a weirdo. He's a charismatic weirdo. I like him yeah. to play other charismatic weirdo roles. I know. Same like with him, Tom Hardy. Yeah, same, same. Exactly the same. Like he would be. They would both be incredible, and they both deserve better than being chained <laughs> to this. Yeah, to this role. For and the I next, guess the like, context is that, of course, Daniel Craig, like infamously, <laughs> he hates this role, yeah. and he hates yeah. whatever contract he signed um, to sign away. I guess the prime years of his life to this. He has been yeah. very open and on the record um, saying he'd rather slash his wrist than do another another yeah. Bond film. I'm so happy that now that he's just free of it, so he can just like rest his head on his wife's gorgeous bosom. <laughs> Shout out to Rachel Weiss uh, for the rest of his days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one one thing that I am proactively and anti- also anti against, on top of Nicholas Holt and Tom Hardy, is Dev Patel. People have been talking about Dev Patel. I will riot oh. if Dev Patel takes this fucking. Role. We would not wish that on him. No. He just had his like A24 debut. He's like out here. Come on, man. Don't do it. Don't. If you're listening, Dev Patel. Please don't take the role. Um, I will crack up though. My my funny thing is like, what if it's just James Corden? Oh my god! Just put him in everything, right? Just put him in everything. Just put him in everything. Like James <laughs> Corden, if he gets oh amazing. But we'll see. I guess we'll find out. I'm sure that they will do a huge media hype buzz about it, and we'll all just be not that excited but interested all the same. So that's it from us this week. We are off next week. So just, you know, don't be up in our DMs asking us where the episode is. <laughs> um, but we, if you have been watching anything you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com. At the top of this episode, we did mention some of the stuff we were, that we're watching. So just, you know, keep at it. And um, if not, just at us or DM us also at criticismisdead on Twitter and Instagram if we, mentioned, if we haven't mentioned something that you think we should check out. Um, just as an aside, I've been watching scenes from a marriage, mm. so just letting you guys know. Another thing. All right. Another yes. thing. Yeah. I forgot about that one. Anyway, 
For extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. Shout out to Jenny for her fantastic work on that. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend about us. See, Squid Game, it's all word of mouth. Do you see how popular it is? That could be us. <laughs> Just tell your friends. Like, put us on TikTok or something. I don't fucking know. Yeah, anyway, please TikTok about us. Please TikTok. <laughs> the powers that be. I did I did tweet something out about how much I'm never going to download t- TikTok, so... Oh, it's hope, okay. I'll, I'll keep you updated on whatever Thank you. TikTok. Don't come for me. Don't come for me, TikTok heads. Um, we will see you the week after next, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Criticism Instead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Jijia. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.